Would you please pray with me? Again, God, we look and listen for a word from you to give us a point of view that is more than our own. Help us to be awed by it and be made well by it. Amen. When my daughter Sophia was born into the world, I would regularly whisper to her, you are my gift from God. I could never have dreamed you up. I wanted her to grow up knowing that she was awesomely and wonderfully made, not by her father and me, but by God. And that her value resided in this existential fact. Nothing could alter the fact that she belonged to God. The psalmist gives exquisite voice to this knowledge in Psalm 139. Wherein the psalmist says to God, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. These words of the psalmist express a knowledge that all of us want, perhaps more than anything else, to possess. We want to store it deeply in our psyches so that no one can take it away from us. The knowledge that we are loved and that who we are matters. When we have this knowledge, it is as though we have been given an endowment from which we can draw, without it ever running out, the entirety of our lives. It is as though we have been given a superpower to weather all kinds of hardships in life. It is a knowledge without which, however, we are very vulnerable. We don't have to look far these days to run into data, both anecdotal and systematically researched, that tell us that depression, anxiety, and substance abuse have dramatically increased. In 2017, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 66.6 million Americans, more than half of the respondents to the survey, reported binge drinking within the past month and 20 million met the criteria for substance use disorder. Nearly a third American adults will develop a full-blown anxiety disorder at some time in their lives. The World Health Organization reports that 264 million people are depressed. In the US, 17 million American adults are depressed each year. Currently, over 16% of youth in late adolescence are depressed. Colleges and universities are having a hard time meeting the demand for mental health counseling services. And it may be the case that many of us are worried about someone we know who is afflicted by what Dr. Lisa Miller calls diseases of despair. Lisa Miller is a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University. And there she is also founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, a graduate program that is unusual in that it combines spirituality and psychology. In her book, The Awakened Brain, she shares a bit about her professional quest to understand whether and how spirituality might be associated 
with health, mental health. While Jewish in background, Dr. Miller never considered herself to be especially religious or theological. Though she loved the prayers and rituals of her faith tradition, she didn't consider herself to be a by-the-book Jew. This is why she felt a bit inadequate to lead a Yom Kippur service for the small group of patients who had been assigned to her at a psychiatric inpatient unit in Manhattan where she was working right after graduate school. The opportunity to lead this Yom Kippur service came up, however, the day before Yom Kippur, when one of her patients, whom she renames Jerry for purposes of confidentiality, raised the question, what's being done for Yom Kippur? Until he raised this question, she had no idea that he was Jewish. Religion was spoken of so rarely on the ward that even though Jerry was her patient, she had no idea that he was Jewish. And until that last moment, she hadn't considered the fact that no service would be available for the many Jewish patients there. When the presiding psychiatrist said that nothing had been planned, another patient, Rebecca, dropped her eyes in disappointment. And another patient, Bill, beat his fists against his thighs. Jerry fumed, nothing is planned? Nothing? Given that the hospital was in a neighborhood with a high concentration of Jewish residents and that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the holiest day in Judaism, Dr. Lisa Miller decided that she would lead a Yom Kippur observance for Jewish patients in the unit to which she had been assigned. Rebecca, Bill, Jerry, and others had come, including Saul, a 38-year-old man who had been admitted to the ward for barricading himself in a midtown hotel room so socially phobic that social interactions could trigger psychosis. This is how Lisa Miller describes what happened. When I had arrived for our Yom Kippur observance at the Unit 6 kitchen, a windowless, antiseptic room with a round plastic table sitting on a tired-looking beige and white linoleum floor. They were already there. They had arranged the chairs in a circle and were seated as if at their own kitchen table, inhabiting the depressing room with a sense of intimacy and warm solemnity. This was the first time I had seen residents interacting this way. They were visibly here to connect. They had dressed up in slacks, sweaters, button-up shirts. Rebecca had put on dark pink lipstick. Given how socially withdrawn the four had been, especially Saul, I wasn't sure to what extent they would participate in the prayers. But when I began the service, all four immediately commenced chanting building into a robust chorus. Jerry, though he'd never said a word to me about being Jewish, recited whole passages of Hebrew text from memory. Bill tapped his foot along to the prayers, and Rebecca, usually so remote and guarded, leaned forward, her posture open. 
We conversed about the service as we went, everyone collaborative and gracious, taking turns reading sections in Hebrew in English, interpreting the holiday prayers and sharing their insights. The attendants, usually called on to restrain patients or enforce rules, also seemed absorbed in the fluid rhythm of the prayers. Though they were unfamiliar with the service, their presence and sensitivity added reverence. None of them were experts or scholars. They relied on what had been passed down to them in their childhood. As they made their way through the service, the patients became dramatically enlivened, their eyes brightening as they read and sang. Rebecca sat up taller and sang fully. Jerry read robustly. Saul started to officiate and correct us on the mechanics of this service, she writes. And Bill, despite being filled with energy, did not erupt in a manic display. Near the end, Jerry offered, how can you not believe in an all-powerful God of goodness when you look around and see the beauty of the universe? Rebecca said, thank you for the service. Lisa then said, Yom Kippur for me is a very important time because I make mistakes. I mess up. This is a time when I ask the people in my life forgiveness and then ultimately ask God for forgiveness. Saul then turned to her and said, God will forgive you. God always forgives everyone. Stunned. She was stunned to receive care and counsel from Saul, who feared people to the point of barricading himself in a hotel room. To hear a confident statement of faith from Jerry, who usually lay in bed, trapped in a state of despair and futility. Reflecting on this new experience, Lisa noted that something had happened in that kitchen in Unit 6 that wasn't happening through the primary medical interventions of medication and psychotherapy, and that the healing, however temporary it might turn out to be, was specific to each patient's greatest need. As a clinician and scientist, Lisa Miller wanted to know what had really happened at their Yom Kippur observance, and could it support their longer-term healing? This is a story that Dr. Miller shared to illustrate the forming hypothesis that has guided her research thereafter, that we all have an innate capacity in our brains to become spiritually awakened, by which she means a capacity to perceive a greater reality and consciously connect to that life force that moves in, through, and around us. We were made in such a way that we can awaken to feel more at home in the world, to build relationships and make decisions from a wider view, to move from isolation to connection, from competition and division to compassion and altruism, from an entrenched focus on wounds, problems, and losses to a fascination with the journey of life. 
by exercising and building up our spiritual capacity, the neural circuitry of our brains can help to protect us from diseases of despair. Moreover, if we see our choices and their consequences through a lens of interconnectedness and shared responsibility, a greater sense of purpose and meaning can inform our work, our institutions, our culture. I am glad, as of late, that new scientific research on the brain is enabling us to discover fascinating things about how spirituality is correlated with psychology. Extensive MRI images of the brain show that high spiritual brains are healthier than low spiritual brains, thicker and stronger in exactly the same regions that weaken and wither in depressed brains. It would be helpful to know how the brain is developed over time by the rhythmic and ritual practices of singing, praying, and worshiping. It would be helpful to know how the neural circuitry of the brain is activated by our sense of connectedness and belonging within the body of Christ and how the more complex, uniquely human functions of the brain are exercised when we think about God, cultivate our values, and reflect on the past and envision a new creation. We need to learn more about all of this because life can be full of adversity. And in our life together, as the body of Christ, Perhaps we can help and be helped by one another to build resiliency against diseases of despair. In his book, What Happened to You?, co-written with Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Bruce Perry, a neuroscientist and psychiatrist, tells a story about the first time he saw how healing in a community can work and how it shifted the way he thinks about therapy. He started to understand that most healing, not all, but most healing happens outside of formal therapy. That most healing happens in community. In 1993, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives attempted a raid on David Koresh on his Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Most of you remember that story. Ten people were killed that day, and over the next three days, the FBI negotiated the release of 21 children in the compound. And when these releases of children stopped, a 51-day siege ensued, ending with an FBI assault and a Davidian-lit fire which killed 76 Davidians, including the remaining 25 children. Dr. Perry was asked by Texas state officials to lead a clinical team to care for the released Davidian children. They ranged in age from three to 13. They had been taught to believe that all non-Davidians were Babylonians intent on destroying David Koresh and his followers. Torn away from everyone they knew, they were now in the custody of people they believed would kill them. 
The first thing Dr. Perry's team did was to make the environment and schedule more predictable and controllable. Every day began with a morning meeting and included play, quiet time, and meals always at the same time. They were given opportunities to make choices about what they ate, played with, and how they spent their quiet time. Each day after the children went to bed, the team would discuss each child. Dr. Perry logged every interaction that a team member had with a, a child, what it was like and how long it lasted. Many were brief moments. A child would ask, what do you think will happen to my mom? Then listen to a reassuring comment and drift back to play. The children were controlling when and how they talked about the traumatic events that they had experienced. They were also seeking safe, stable, and physically regulating interactions. Push me on the swing. Let's draw. As Dr. Perry added up the interactions, he saw that despite no formal therapy sessions, the children were getting over two hours of therapeutic interaction each day. One of the most important observations was that these children needed different kinds of interactions and at different times. A child who wanted quiet nurturing would seek out one of our staff who was a really good listener. When the child wanted to play, they'd seek out a member of our team who was more rambunctious and playful. When they wanted reassurance from an authority figure, they'd go to Dr. Perry. As I read this, it made me think that the church can be that for one another. None of us can be all things and everything to anyone. But given the diversity of our personalities and gifts, we can offer those therapeutic interactions, those moments of attention, care, nurture, and friendship to one another. We can tell each other and treat one another as one who is fearfully and wonderfully made. We can offer assurance that no matter what happens in life, God knows us, that we matter to God. In all the rhythms of our communal life, as we praise and worship God, as we live, move, and have our being in God, this is the knowledge to which we can testify and hold dear. Amen. Friends, this summer in worship, we are spending time reflecting on the whys of our faith, our life together, our practice of being church, our witness in the community, and our invitation to others. And we will, at the end of each sermon, offer a question for all of us to consider. In the pews, you will find a basket with cards that you are invited to use as you reflect. For those who are worshiping online, we encourage you to grab a piece of paper nearby and use that to record your reflections. We're calling this a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to scripture and the word proclaimed. 
Your reflection can also be understood as an offering of yourself, and so to that end, if you wish, you can place it in the offering plate as it comes by later in the service, or if you're worshiping online, you can email it to one of your pastors. I invite you now to be open to the Spirit's movement within you and to consider for a few quiet moments the question, what difference has it made in your life or does it make in your life to know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God? 